This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. And today for our hot question today, we are talking about plastic. And this is because we got the news this morning that the province of Newfoundland and Labrador has announced that it is going to become the second province to ban plastic bags. They introduced this legislation yesterday, meaning that it could, the, the use of plastic bags will be banned at stores and other retail outlets. Now, it's not going to take effect for between 6 and 12 months there. They want to give consumers time to get in the habit of bringing reusable bags. They're not the only province that has done this. Prince Edward Island passed a ban like this last June, and it's going to take effect this July 1st. We've got municipalities that have tried this in the past, but it's not very often that you see larger jurisdictions tackling this. I don't know about you, but I feel really guilty when I get to the store and realize that I have forgotten my reusable bags, which are always usually in the back of my car. And then I keep a couple of those little pouch bags in my purse, right? Just in case. Sometimes I walk out the door with my wallet and I forget that I need to take a bag with me. So would you support this idea here? So much discussion, right? About single use plastics and the damage that that does. If we could all, you know, find other ways to pack our groceries or carry things around, would you support the idea of a plastic bag ban in the entire province of BC? Do you say, yeah, that's a green move. I would totally do that. Or do you think, no, that's just too far. Sometimes you need a plastic bag. I'm going to be really curious as to how this one comes out today, right? So go to Sarah 980 on Twitter to cast your vote on this. You can also go to at CKNW. Let us know what your thoughts are on this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com, or try our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. It's pretty straight up today, right? Canadians generate enough plastic waste every year to fill 140,000 garbage trucks. Newfoundland and Labrador say one thing they're going to do is ban plastic bags. Should we be doing the same here in BC? Let me know what you think about that. Well, let's talk about what's going on in Surrey. There has been, as you've been hearing in the news, another murder in Surrey overnight. The RCMP and the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team are on the scene of a housing complex at 139th and 72nd. They found a man there with gunshot wounds just shortly before midnight. So there's no word yet if this is gang-related, but the investigation is ongoing. And all of these shootings and crimes that when we talk about in Surrey come against the backdrop of a community wanting to change how it is policed or beef up its policing or just make sure they're getting the best that they possibly can. So for those Surrey residents out there, listen up. This is your first glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes for the planning and implementation of the Surrey Police Force. We know a report was done on the transition and sent to the provincial government. And Global News senior reporter Janet Brown has obtained some of that information from the report and joins us now to talk more about it. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simeon. Let's just clarify, the report has not gone to the province yet. It is still being written up. It is going to the province, the Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. We are told by the mayor in the third or fourth week of April, so within the next couple of weeks. But uh, they are still uh, crossing the T's, dotting the I's. The report has not been shipped off yet. But what we do have, I have been able to obtain the terms of reference for the Surrey Policing Transition Project, is what they are calling it. And what it is right now, it's a confidential memo basically laying out, Simi, the plan and the overall approach as the city tries to move away from the RCMP to a civic police force. 
And uh, let's outline it a little bit, and then sure. I can drill down for you. Uh, phase one, they say, is underway right now, of course, um, with the project team in place, headed up by Terry Waterhouse, writing the report for the province and coming up with this so-called strategic plan. And phase two is to get underway in July, and that will focus on recruitment. Phase three, uh, beginning January, they hope, with senior management and key personnel brought on board. And I assume that would be the hiring of a new police chief and also the police board being set up next January. And that is a police board similar to the Vancouver Police Board that meets in open, uh, not behind closed doors like the Surrey Public Safety Committee does at the moment. Okay. This police board uh, would meet in public and people from the community can come forward and present their their issues that they face with policing and that sort of thing. And then phase four is set to roll out uh, July 2020. Uh, and that will coincide not only with the new police service, but also running parallel uh, with the winding up of the RCMP contract, because, of course, there has to be some overlap there as well. Right. Uh, let, let's drill down now, Simi. I have some details that I wasn't able to put in my uh, news report this morning. Uh, and, and it's kind of a long list, but if you have okay. time, I yep. can run, run over it for you. So under the headline of initial operating assumptions, and it's a, it's a fairly long list, Simi, and let me run down it for you. It says, first of all, the transition time frame will be two years. Then it says the new resources will be needed to identify to cover transition costs, including costs for the dual operation of the Surrey Police Department and the Surrey RCMP. So more money required coming from city council, coming from taxpayers. Then it says uh, the city will continue to expend its budget as planned for the Surrey RCMP during this transitional period. OK, that makes sense uh, that the Surrey Police Department will need to start recruitment. Yes, as we outlined this July and building towards having some staff operating during the second year of the transitional phase. At a minimum, it says the Surrey Police Department will start with the same number of sworn members as the current Surrey RCMP with a plan to increase the number of sworn members. How many it plans to increase it by, it does not say here, Simi. Uh-huh. It says, uh-huh. It says additional municipal employees will need to be recruited for the new Surrey Police Department to operate with this dual police service during the second year of the transition. Okay, that makes sense. Then it says salary rates for new Surrey Police Department sworn members will be benchmarked in line with similar municipal police salary rates. That means they will take a look at what police officers in Delta make, in Vancouver make, and come up with a number. And everybody's expecting that to be higher um, because we all yeah. know municipal police officers make slightly more than RCMP members. It says the new recruit and in-service training will take plus uh, take place at the Justice Institute of New Westminster, uh, pardon me, the Justice Institute of BC in New Westminster, that the financial plan will include clear articulation of what assets belong to the city of Surrey, what belong to the federal government. We have heard from the mayor, Simi, that the police cars, the buildings, etc., belong to the city. Now, this is a biggie, I think, um, that a new IT infrastructure system will be required. I have no idea what that would cost, but oh, that's I would expensive. imagine <laughs> it would cost, yeah, a fair chunk of change for sure. Uh, and that would be a big undertaking to get that up and running, I would imagine. Then it says determination of pension transfers for RCMP members must be thoroughly analyzed. 
That's another biggie. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that the pensions of the RCMP members are not portable. So, um, you know, that's another huge one. I'm sure if it's a junior member who just has a couple of years service that it would be easier for them maybe to cash out their pension and start with another force. But somebody who's been there for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, um, you know, they've got to take a close look at that and how that impacts them. It says uh, Surrey Police Department will retain dispatch services or contract to e-com or continue to, to provide dispatch services locally. So I guess that's still a big question mark. Uh, it says all personnel employed by the new service will retain security requirements. Yes, we understand that, that the new service will require a policy and procedure manual to be developed and that civilian compensation is based on current city of Surrey municipal employee rates. And yes, that wouldn't change at all because we all know there's a lot of civilians that work at Surrey RCMP who support what the RCMP do. Yeah, I can. You Sorry, know what, Janet? Kitty? We're going to have to reconnect with you, I think, in a moment. So why don't we just get her back, get her back up in just a moment, because it sounds like something went wrong there with the line. But essentially what I want to ask her about is the fact that there sounds like there are some red flags there for Surrey residents to be concerned about, right? Um, even though the mayor keeps saying that there's not going to be very much of an increase, maybe 10%, but that that covers pretty much the salary increase of the members making more uh, because RCMP members don't make as much as municipal police departments. But what about the increase in the number of officers? That's going to cost more. New infrastructure IT system is going to cost more. Uh, you know, we I think that's going to add up to more than that 10% of what they have been um, thinking or not. So we're getting Janet back on so I can ask her a few more questions about that. But things are going to happen very quickly in Surrey over the next year or so, it sounds like. So as Janet explained, phase one is underway right now. Phase two starts in July, meaning they're going to be focusing on recruitment, people who are interested in applying to work for the Surrey Police Department. Uh, that starts in July. That's a big deal right there. Phase three will start next January when senior management and key personnel are brought on board and a police board is set up. So lots of steps that are going to be undertaken very, very quickly. And we've got Janet Brown back with us here. So Janet, from what you were saying there, it sounded to me like there's there's a lot of potential red flags here when it comes to increasing costs. It certainly sounds like that. And it certainly sounds like uh, it will be back to the drawing board. They will have to go. This transition team is going to have to go back to city council and, and ask for more money. It certainly sounds that way. I mean, where else is the money going to come from? It's going to come from the city and from ultimately taxpayers. Um, and, and that second item I read to you, Simi, um, that new resources will be needed and identified to cover transition costs, including the cost of the dual operation of both forces in the year 2020. Right. So there's going to be additional money there. Um, they talk, obviously, about the members making the same or pretty close to the same as other municipal police officers. So that will be another increase. And in terms of purchasing the assets from the federal government, uh, contracts with ECOM, contracts with E-Division RCMP services, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we still don't know the cost, do we? And that's the big question right yeah. now. And, um, you know, when we will find that out, Simi, is when the report from the city of Surrey goes to the province, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, that is when we will find out what transitioning to the new police uh, service will cost okay. and what the ongoing costs will be to the taxpayers. And I think I've said before here, Simi, um, Surrey is unique, and I think it's unique in a good way, that at line items, how much 
taxpayers uh, pay to the for RCMP services, RCMP services, and for fire services. And my home almost pays eight hundred dollars a year. So the question is, how much more somebody like me am I willing to pay? for a Surrey Police Department. And I think a lot of people are under the impression that it's going to be maybe 10% more, maybe maybe 20% more. But, you know, I'm hearing all sorts of yeah. numbers right now. We hear from the mayor it's going to be roughly 10% more. Mm. But, you know, some City Hall insiders are saying it could be several hundred dollars a more, more per year. That's so what I'm thinking, So that's what too. we're waiting yeah. to hear. Okay. How much? Thank you so much for that, Janet. Appreciate your time. And I apologize for the phone issue, Simi. No Sorry worries about that. at all. You got the Thank info you. out there. Thank you, Janet. That is Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter. Uh, she's so good, right? No need for her to apologize for technical problems. Well, Einstein predicted it, but we still had never seen it until today. This is the first time in history that we can be witness to this, the existence of a black hole. This morning, an international scientific team announced that they were able to see and capture the first ever picture of a black hole. This one is situated at the center of the Messier 87 galaxy. That is a massive galaxy in the nearby Virgo galaxy cluster. The picture was revealed, and this tells you how international this was. It was revealed at Simon simultaneous news conferences that were held in Washington, Brussels, Santiago, Shanghai, Taipei, and Tokyo. Now let's find out more about this research. It was conducted by the Event Horizon Telescope Project. That's an international collaboration uh, that began back in 2012. But we're going to learn more about what a big deal this is. Chris Gaynor joins us, the president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. Hi, Chris. Morning. Were you excited about this? Oh, yes. You, you know, uh, the uh, announcement of the release sort of arrived in our mailbox, uh, what, about a week ago. And so so I've been waiting and a lot of other people have been waiting to see what we were going to see this morning. Can you tell me a bit about the effort uh, that it took to make this happen? And, and why has it been so difficult to ever get this picture? <clears throat> well, uh at the distance we're talking about, you're 55 million light years away. It, even though it, it is on its own a gigantic object, it's it's so far away. It's it's tiny, and this is really a a, a triumph of computing, actually, because they have had to gather over time a massive amount of data from eight different radio telescopes in different parts of the world, and then. All this data has been kind of put together to uh, t- to get this this image. You know that might not look like uh, a gigantic amount of data when you look at the at the picture, but uh, it, it took that to to uh, you know get get the idea of the of the black hole. That's a the picture you see. It, it, it's kind of a, a silhouette. You actually can't see the black hole, but of course it's blocking light around it and behind it. So so uh, we're looking at the silhouette. Right. Okay, so what did it look like to you when you saw that picture? Because I know a lot of people go, well, what is that? Uh, what does that look like to you when you see it? Well, I mean, it kind of looks like a black hole, right? It's sort of a, uh, you know, a, a big black dot, but it's, it's surrounded by, uh, what is it, kind of yellowish, orangish uh, light, which which surrounds it, and it's kind of uneven. Uh, it's wider in, in, in some parts than the other. And, uh, and the scientists who were working on it said they kind of expected it that way, 
um, just just because of the the way the uh, matter close to the black hole interacts with it. Like some of that matter that that we see there in the light is actually falling into the black hole. The the picture is kind of important because it it proves some of the theories that have existed around black holes. You know, we've only been kind of been able to infer them before now without actually seeing them. But things like the event horizon, you know, when you, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, you kind of fall off the edge of time, things like that. Um, The scientists who've looked at this picture say that it confirms that idea. You know, this is stuff that Stephen Hawking was talking about. Really? So just from that one picture, we can say that some of these theories were correct? That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's basically the, the, the general belief. I'm sure somebody's going to argue with it, but uh, <laughs> I think that's pretty well a consensus. That is amazing. Like one picture. So it took this huge effort to get this one picture, and from that we can extrapolate all of this other information. Yeah, I mean, it, it took... It took a number of years of effort to get get that one picture and just a, a, a gigantic uh, amount of computing power. I forget what the number was, but they were like using these supercomputers that are cooled by helium. You know, they were running so hot, uh, processing this massive amount of data that was coming in. That's amazing. What is the next step, though? Now that we have a picture, Chris, like what do we do now? Well, I imagine uh, I imagine they're going to be wanting to get uh, pictures of other black holes like this uh, in, in other galaxies. Basically, you know, we've known for a long time that there have been black holes around, but it it uh, it was only when when the Hubble Space Telescope came out that we discovered there were these what we call supermassive black holes that are at the center of every galaxy, including our own. Um, you know, like this, this one, for example, is, is, you know, six and a half billion with a B times larger uh, and heavier than our sun. Uh, wow. Now, of course, you would think, well, let's look at the, at the one in our own galaxy, but there's sort of so much gas and various other things around it, it's, it's kind of difficult to... Uh, to uh, to see it, we've kind of had to in, infer where it is. That's that's in Sagittarius. If it, anybody wants to uh, take a shot at it, <laughs> listen. How many black holes then do we know of, Chris? Well, uh, it's 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 a gigantic uh, number. You know, like you know, uh, because we think pretty well every galaxy worthy of the name has a, like a supermassive black hole at the center of it. And then we have kind of your garden variety black holes, you know, in, in various other places. So we're, we're talking about, you know, probably hundreds of billions, things like that. Well, this is pretty impressive then. So this is like a, do you call this a big step forward? Oh, absolutely. You know, a lot of people thought we might never live to see this day. And, you know, here we are. Uh, this year is the, the 100th anniversary of... Uh, uh, kind of the first proof we got that uh, Einstein's theory of relativity worked, that it, and that was when uh, they looked at a solar eclipse and saw a star near the sun, and and they deduced that that's where it would be because the light was bent as Einstein predicted, and this 
today's uh, picture is kind of further proof of Einstein's theory. Which just makes you want, like, again, you just have so, I'm so amazed, though, that these theories that were written, you know, decades and decades ago could be borne out by only by technology that would be created since then. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, but, you know, we're still, we still have all sorts of questions to answer. You know, we've been talking about dark matter and dark energy and things like that. And, uh, uh, so it seems every time we get an answer to a question, uh, we, we get uh, more new questions. Well, more work, I guess, needs to be done. Chris, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate that. That's Chris Gaynor, president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. So buried in the federal budget bill is a provision inserted by the Liberal government that could have quite an impact on refugee and asylum claims in Canada. So essentially what this provision would do is not allow refugees to make an asylum claim in Canada if they have already done so in another country like the UK, the United States or Australia or New Zealand. The thinking being, uh, according to the government anyway, that those those country systems are so similar to ours that if they've been rejected or they're being processed elsewhere, they don't need to make a what they call a duplicate claim here in Canada. That is a big change. And refugee advocates across the country say they have felt blindsided by this, that they had no idea this was coming. So what kind of an impact could this have? Well, we're speaking now to Janet Dench, who's the Executive Director at the Canadian Council for Refugees. Janet, thank you so much for speaking to us about this. Glad to join you. Thank you for your interest. When did you first hear about this provision? Well, we had had some rumors that there might be some bad news in the uh, budget implementation bill, and there was certainly some language in the budget that suggested the government was preoccupied with bringing in restrictive measures, uh, but we really did not expect it to to go this far. And so I think everybody really in the field has been in complete shock to uh, find out, as we did Monday evening after the bill had been tabled, uh, we were not consulted on this beforehand, uh, that the government was proposing these wide-ranging and devastating uh, changes. And what kind of an impact do you think these changes could have? Well, we are still trying to figure out uh, how broadly it goes um, because um, it's a question that really hasn't been ans- asked in the past. Mostly, it's not really relevant whether or not you made a refugee claim before in the United States. So people have been commenting about, uh, you know, among their clients or pe- organ- people that their organization sees uh, how many of them uh, have made a claim in the United States. Uh, one comment that uh, I saw made, which I think is quite interesting, is how uh, partly it relates to people's means and people who are poorer, uh, people from Central America or people who have very uh, limited means often enter the United States through the southern border and make their way through the United States and very often have no choice uh, but uh, to interact with the immigration officials at some point and probably have to make a refugee claim, even though they're planning all the time to come to Canada, whereas uh, more wealthy people um, may be more likely to get a visa as a tourist to to enter the United States and uh, be able to safely come up to the Canadian border to make a claim without having passed through the the U.S. uh, uh, refugee system or having to interact with it. And so it's a measure that potentially will uh, particularly affect uh, uh, people who have less means. So... If that's the case, then, if this provision passes, those people, anybody who's applied for asylum elsewhere would just automatically be ineligible here in Canada? 
Well, it's not anywhere elsewhere. Um, it's relate. It's restricted to uh, countries with whom Canada has an information sharing agreement. Right now, that is uh, the United States, Australia, UK, and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way the law is drafted, you know, who knows what would happen next year? And then that also is a concern that all kinds of other countries might um, be added to the list. Um, for us right now, the U.S. is the main concern because obviously that's the country through which many people who come to Canada have passed. And the concerns um, about the U.S. system have, of course, got much worse uh, in the last few years. And Canadians have had uh, plenty of opportunities to see uh, what the problems, uh, some of the problems are in the uh, U.S. refugee system. So we can very easily understand why people... Um, who need protection uh, might not get it in the U.S. system or, or might uh, feel like they'd be better off to abandon their claim there and, and come up to Canada and uh, try in uh, this country. Uh, right. One of the groups particularly is people fleeing, fleeing gender-based persecution because of changes in the U.S. system and Attorney General, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who adopted new rules which uh, really uh, very much limit uh, the possibility of getting refugee protection if you're fleeing gender-based persecution. Right. Now, the minister responsible, Bill Blair, said that this was an effort to stop asylum seekers shopping around. I mean, do you think that's fair? Is that really a thing? It's a very offensive uh, thing to say, and, and I think when we hear those words, I think it's important for us to think about the lives and struggles of people who have been forced out of their country, who find that the world is a very hostile place where everybody is setting up uh, barriers trying to prevent you from getting to where you need to get, where you might get protection, uh, taking away your rights in various ways, people who are abusing you and exploiting you. Um, and then to say to somebody who uh, tries to get the, the best uh, options of, like, where are they most likely to be able to be protected, and then to be told, well, you're asylum shopping, um, that is really minimizing um, what is at stake. I'd also mention that one of the categories of people um, that um, are coming to Canada after being in the United States are people who have family members in, in Canada And, of course, if you've fled persecution, your life is all turned upside down, you've lost so much, um, one of the things that you want to hang on to is to be together with your family. And, of course, that can make it much easier for you to restart your life. Um, So it makes sense for people who have family members in Canada to come here rather than trying to um, uh, make a claim in the United States. And, And Canada recognizes that in the Safe Third Country Agreement, we specifically have an exception uh, for people who have family in Canada. So it's very perverse for us to be on the one hand saying, yes, you should be exempt from being sent back to the U.S., but on the other hand, once you come here to reunite with your family members, then we're going to penalize you and say you're very bad because you came to Canada rather than um, continuing your claim in the U.S. uh, separated from your family uh, that is here in Canada. Now, Janet, let me ask you, how many people does this impact? Like, does the person, the average person who shows up here to make a refugee claim, have they already applied somewhere else? We don't have that information, um, but I think that um, it's reasonable to say that we're talking about thousands of people. Uh, We're talking also about people who have simply had some um, brush with the 
U.S. system, uh, for example, somebody who is arrested and who um, has to make a, a, some sort of a refugee claim uh, in order not to be detained or to be released from detention and then continues up to Canada uh, and all the way to people who have been through the system and whose claim has been rejected. Uh, so all of those people would be included. We're not even actually quite sure what um, what the Canadian government has in mind when they say people made a refugee claim in the U.S. because the system in the U.S. is, is very complicated and there are various different ways in which you can ask for uh, protection from the U.S. Right. What, so that's a question in itself. What do you think happened here, Janet? Like, is this because we have an election coming up? I think this has to be seen in the in the context of politics, and uh, the Prime Minister is quoted uh, in the media saying that he wants to assure Canadians that um, Canada has uh, control of things. Um, I think that that's assuming that Canadians uh, want the door to be shut on refugees and that Canadians are not generous and open and wanting to respect the basic rights of refugees, and I, I hope the Prime Minister is wrong on that and that Canadians will say, no, we want to do, do the right thing by refugees. So you said this could potentially be thousands of people, though. Yes, yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think the government itself has mentioned uh, three thousand five hundred, but I don't even know what that's referring to. That's a lot. Then, are you hearing concerns then from within the community about this? People are really yes. This is their emails uh, all flowing uh, about this. People trying to figure out what this means and and also how do we how do we raise our voice to um oppose this because this really is uh and this is something that people are clear we want to get the word out that this is uh very unacceptable that uh we want um the the politicians to hear but Canadians also to to have their choice because what has happened here is that this very important change has been slipped into the budget bill which means it's not going to get full discussion and and that in itself is is a major a major concern. So the, the the kind of lack of democratic process, uh, the fact that people's charter rights uh, are being um, traded away in in the back notes of a huge uh, omnibus bill without it being properly discussed. I hope that um, most Canadians would think that that was uh, unacceptable as a way to proceed. Is there room on this? Do you think? Like, have you? Is there a chance to talk to Bill Blair or, or reach out to the government on this? We're certainly uh, encouraging people to contact uh, their members of parliament to to say that uh, they would like the government to rethink this or if they're in the opposition to, to oppose this. Well, we'll see what happens. Janet, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you very much for your interest. Appreciate that. That's Janet Dench, the Executive Director at the Canadian Council for Refugees. Well, it is a long-time dream for many Canadians to be able to order alcohol from another province and have it shipped to you. Cross-border alcohol trade is a hot topic, but it may have, just may have, gotten a little bit closer to being a reality. The federal government took steps this week to remove the federal requirement that alcohol moving from one province to another has to go through a provincial liquor authority. Once that passes, theoretically... Provinces and territories could then make changes to allow direct-to-consumer shipping. Can you imagine that? I don't know. Seems kind of hard, right? Shay Colson is with us now to talk more about this. He's a lawyer and partner at Dentons Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Shay. Thanks for having me. Do you think this is a significant step forward? Um, not really, uh, because... We already know that it's the provincial laws that have been the problem. So the federal law already had a personal use exemption previously that allowed individuals to ship 
uh, Canadian-made uh, products across provincial borders for their personal use, um, subject to the laws of the provinces. So that didn't really spur any changes whatsoever. Uh, now that the federal government has completely removed all regulation of interprovincial shipments of liquor, whether it's Canadian or not, um, it's still in the province's court to do something about uh, the barriers because it's really the provincial laws that create barriers. Right. So the thing that prevents us from ordering a case of wine from another province and having it delivered are provincial laws. That's right. Um, so everyone probably remembers the Free the Beer Como case, um, which, uh, in full disclosure, I was counsel on that case. Um, but what the court said in that case was that the provinces have jurisdiction to control the supply of liquor within the province. And so in that case, there was a provincial law that said, you know, you as an individual cannot possess liquor in New Brunswick unless it is acquired from the provincial liquor monopoly. So the court said that, yes, that had an impact on interprovincial trade, but that that was only incidental and therefore the law was permitted. And so it's those kinds of laws, which exist in every single province, um, that prohibit the, uh, the, inter- the interprovincial direct-to-consumer shipments so we still need the provinces to, you know, from a legal perspective, we need them to amend their frameworks and come up with a national plan. But if the now the federal government has done away with their requirement to purchase alcohol through the provincial liquor authority, so do you think this could potentially get the ball rolling? Well, from a practical perspective, it's interesting, right? So legally, no, but practically, it puts a bit of onus on the provinces to combat what may develop as a result otherwise, right? So for instance, you know, what if you're a business operating outside of British Columbia, like a retailer or something, and you ship wine directly into British Columbia now? So the federal law, if if the amendment passes, the federal law is gone. So there is nothing prohibiting the actual shipment. And then how is the receiving province supposed to enforce its law? against you if you're an out-of-province business. Now, it's still illegal, right? And so, you know, like, as a lawyer, I would never advise that, but I'm thinking practically what may, might happen. And so there's a there's a real sort of um, onus, I guess, on the provinces to think ahead, and I think the, the federal government wants them to come up with a framework where you're going to allow interprovincial shipments where you may have a revenue-sharing or tax-sharing agreement between the provinces so that revenues are not lost to create legitimate legal channels for this kind of flow of goods. Right. So once the government has, if, you know, they could go ahead and pass this bill, then is it possible the provincial laws could be challenged in any way? Uh, No, I don't think so. Because of the Como case, um, it it made it clear that the laws that support the monopolies are constitutional. What I do think, though, is that when you get down into the granular detail of how a government monopoly actually operates, like so, for example, you know, if you if you sell a product in the monopoly system, you have to get a listing, and there's all sorts of procedural requirements. So you can actually go down to that granular level and see if there are policies that are making it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for out of province, say, wineries, to access the market effectively when in province wineries can do so. And I think the combination of the Como case and this amendment to the federal law does allow for potential challenges to those kinds of policies, 
But the bigger laws, the ones that actually enable the policies to exist, those are going to stay on the books. So then why do you think provinces are so resistant to doing this? Uh, There's a number of reasons. So British Columbia is not resistant, for example, because we have a strong uh, domestic industry. Uh, Ontario and Quebec are fiercely protective of their revenues. There's also, you have to remember that the, um, uh, the employees of these monopolies are unionized, right? So there are unions who are seeking to protect their members' interests as well, who have influence with some governments, especially in Quebec. Um, and then there's provinces like Alberta that, you know, despite the rhetoric earlier on their sort of the wine war with BC when we were looking at Trans Mountain, uh, they actually had a case recently where they were subsidizing their uh, local craft beer industry and they lost a case where Como was applied to their case because it was a discriminatory sub, uh, uh, subsidy. So now, instead of appealing that case, they've decided to take the battle elsewhere and they're going after Ontario subsidies. So there's actually a mix of attitudes right now. And I would suggest that Western Canada is more open to um, a national market and creating a national framework, and Eastern Canada is very resistant to it. So it'll be interesting to see what develops, and certainly it's possible for some but not all of the provinces to come up with an agreement. I find this so interesting because this is something that would be incredibly, I think, popular among people, right? And yet all these provincial elections that happen and nobody says, I'm going to make this happen. They promise a whole bunch of other stuff, like a buck of beer or whatever in Ontario, but not this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. But um, you have to remember in Ontario and Quebec that uh, being able to buy wine from BC is not really a big election issue, right? And they don't really, it, it's not the same as it is out here, right? So it's easier for the governments there to, as you say, promise a bucket beer, which didn't work, or um, say wine and beer in grocery stores or corner stores like they're doing in Ontario right now. is a, That's a more of a populist measure than saying to most people, oh, yeah, you can order craft wine from British Columbia. Because we also know that most people, when it comes to liquor, most people purchase it within a few hours of consuming it. So this sort of online market is very niche, and that means that politically it's niche as well, unless you're a producing province like British Columbia, where the population is very proud of the industry that has developed here. Right. So we have a big incentive to want to remove these Mm -hmm. barriers, but other provinces perhaps not as much. Exactly. So then you're not holding out much hope that this is going to move that needle. Um, not initially. I think that I do think that BC will try to use this to push for further negotiations. But again, it really depends on the willingness of the other provinces to do something. Um, I hope that they would, because in the Como case, one of the arguments that, say, for example, Ontario and Quebec made was, don't, Supreme Court of Canada, don't change the law because really this is the job of the provinces to negotiate through our interprovincial trade deals. So uh, if you're going to say that to the court, I hope that there's some truth to it and that we actually will see efforts. Uh, But again, it's just been talked about for many, many years and nothing has changed. So I think the federal government is saying, you know, look, the ball's in your court now. We're going to remove all restrictions, commercial, personal, Canadian-made, non-Canadian-made, We're out of the game. You guys fix this. Well, we'll see what happens. Shay, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Yeah, no problem. That is Shay Colson, partner at the Denton's Canada Law Firm, talking about cross-border alcohol trade. Okay, here's a question for you. Does this sound like distracted driving to you? A man driving with his phone in the cubbyhole in his car, right? Phone is there, but the phone is dead. No battery. Not working. Uh, But... 
he still has his earbud headphones connected and in his ears. Now, by that description, a lot of people would say, well, no, there's no distraction there. The phone is dead. But a judge here in BC has disagreed with that and found him guilty of distracted driving. And here's the other kickers. RCMP say driving with one earbud in your ear is fine. But if you have two of them in your ear, that is a $368 ticket and four points. Let's talk about this latest distracted driving development with the help of Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thanks for having me. Were you surprised by this ruling? I wasn't surprised by it as soon as I read the part about the driver having two earbuds in his ear. Because that's specifically prohibited in the Motor Vehicle Act regulations, really the judicial justice had no choice but to convict the driver. Right, okay, so you think that was a thing that put it over the edge? I do, yes. There is case law that has said that having a dead battery is um, still a uh, a distracted driving event, that the dead battery in the phone is not, um, doesn't not make it an electronic device. But because the phone was in the cubby holder, if he hadn't had two earbuds in and hadn't, as, as the judicial justice found, extended the phone to include everything that went into his ears, he would have been fine. But it was that addition of the earbuds that put it over the edge. I thought that if you were going to have the phone there and you're driving, that it had to be mounted into a secure holder. No, there was a case uh, that was decided on March 1st in the BC Supreme Court that ruled that as long as the phone is not in use, so you're not touching the phone, you're not engaging with the phone, if the phone's just sitting there in the cup holder, that's totally fine. Okay, so that's a new development then too. Yes. Okay, has that word gotten out then? Like, does that, when, when a ruling like this happens, does that rule filter out very quickly to police forces? It does. The police pay very close attention to rulings from traffic court related to distracted driving tickets in particular because there is so much litigation. And if you even look at the recent report published by the provincial court, disputes of traffic tickets are up this year over last year. And that's largely due to the fact that the consequences for distracted driving tickets are so high that so many people are disputing cell phone and other distracted driving tickets. So the police are paying attention so that they know the law when they're going into court so that they can inform individuals and properly prosecute the cases. Is this kind of clogging up the system then with so many people disputing their tickets? It is having a huge toll on the traffic court system. There are a lot more people who are trying to access the limited resources available, which means that more courtrooms have to be staffed more often, more hearings have to be loaded into every single court day, and more matters are ending up adjourned for lack of court time when they're proceeding to trial. Okay. Now that's the thing. Like a lot of people that could have been avoided. Like for this gentleman in this particular case, I thought, well, what were you doing with two earbuds in your ears and the phone was dead? Like, what? like that seems dumb. It, it really does seem very yeah. silly. I don't know what, what purpose it was serving at that point in time. Um, but uh, I think it could have been avoided through uh, people knowing the law better. And part of that uh, ultimately lays at the feet of government. Because while they've been saying the messaging of leave the phone alone and distracted driving is wrong, they haven't been clearly articulating for the public what actually constitutes distracted driving under the law. A lot of people are taken by surprise by this ruling, including members of the legal community. Right. So you're saying there's still so much uncertainty. And because the the, the fine now is so high, is that leading to a lot more people to be willing to fight it and just take their chances? 
Absolutely. I mean, when you when you increase the fine to $368 plus the $340 a year in the driver risk premium for three years, plus four points on the driving record, which for many people leads to a suspension of their license, people have nothing to lose in taking it to court. Um, they can take the time off work because it costs them less than a day of work to go to court and dispute the ticket. They can pay for a lawyer because it costs less to hire a lawyer than to pay the ticket itself. What? You're kidding me. <laughs> no, no, it's it's about uh, over $900 just in driver risk premiums, plus the $368 fine. And then you also get four points on your license. If you have an N, that means you automatically lose your driver's license. And if you have a class five or higher license, it means you're at risk of losing your license if you've had other tickets, particularly other high risk offenses. So is this slowing down at all then, Kyla? Like people, we always thought that if you if you raise the fines, if you make it harsher, if you get tough on people, people will finally figure out that they're not supposed to drive while distracted. Is that actually the case? No, the police are continuing to do distracted driving blitzes and continuing to issue record high numbers of distracted driving tickets. Obviously, the approach of targeting people in their pocketbooks and making the consequences very significant is not working. So the question is, what do we need to do? And and my view is that we need better public education about what the law actually says is distracted driving, or the government needs to amend the law to to create distracted driving offenses that are so clearly defined that nobody could argue with them. All right, let's run through this then for people so that there's no confusion. What constitutes distracted driving? So uh, using an electronic device, so anything that can transmit or compute data, so a calculator, a cell phone, a GPS, uh, an iPod, any of those things, um, and using constitutes holding the device in a position in which it may be used, which can include in your hand, in your lap, um, clutching it against your face, uh, anything like that is, is considered using it, as well as having two earbuds in, but one earbud is permissible. Okay, so it used to be that even if it was sitting on the seat next to you, you ran the risk of a ticket. But now, as you said, March 1st, that doesn't really, that's not available anymore. No, police officers can no longer ticket people for simply having a phone loose in the vehicle. There has to be an associated act with the phone, so something that would constitute use. Even just plugging the phone in, um, being actively engaged in plugging the phone into your to your charger or your, your um, computer system in your vehicle, that constitutes use. A single touch of the phone is enough to fall within the definition of use. Right. Okay. We're not really getting the message about all this, though, are we, Kyla? Because people are still clearly committed to having their phones behind the wheel. People are. And I think a lot of the problem with that is the lack of clarity, but also the way that vehicles aren't automatically equipped to deal with the law. You see a lot of newer vehicles now have specific charging pads for the phone where you can put the phone without mounting it loose in the vehicle and be charging it, which would technically fall within the definition of use. Right. So we're not being helped, essentially, what you're saying is by the car manufacturers on this. No, I don't think that, that the car manufacturers are helping. The government messaging is not helping. Helping Really, the only thing that's helping is people who are litigating these issues, getting clarity in courts and, and the media for putting the word out about what actually constitutes use so that people are educated and aware and can make smart decisions when behind the wheel. Well, we hope so anyway. But thanks for your help on this, Kyla. <laughs> oh, yeah, anytime. That is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Some very big scientific news today. 
the first ever picture of a black hole has been taken. And you think, well, why is that such a big deal? Scientists didn't think it was ever possible to even get close enough to take a picture of a black hole. And the, the fact that they were able to do it is a testament to a huge international effort of scientists from all over the world who got together to try to make this happen. One of those scientists right here in Canada, as a matter of fact, Avery Broderick, who's an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo, which was one of the institutions involved in this project. And Avery Broderick joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And congratulations. Oh, thank you. We're, we're uh, extremely excited here. Can you give us an idea, Avery, of, of the kind of effort? Like, when was it first decided that the University of Waterloo was going to participate in this? And what did that take? Uh, well, so, so it's the University of Water, Waterloo and the Perimeter Institute have both been involved uh, for many years now. And, and we participate really in the science utilization and, and uh, simulation, trying to understand what it is that we see in these first images. Okay. And that, and that, require, that requires many people working, working with supercomputers, making the, you know, producing the most advanced simulations of uh, black holes, that, that we can that we can uh, uh, produce these days. Can you give us an idea of the kind of computational power this took? Uh, well, it, it takes literally years running on thousands of uh, thousands of computers. So we're talking uh, supercomputers, uh, in fact, across the world. Just to be able to take this picture. Well, that that is certainly true. In fact, this this picture was. Uh, involves supercomputing in many elements of its production. So first, the, the, you know, we, we have telescopes around the world taking data, and we have to put that data together in a supercomputer. Um, but then separately, we had the largest effort in, in the history of astrophysics to produce a library of simulations of what we thought we might see. And, and that library was key to interpreting this image, to getting science out of this image. Uh, and so in both elements, some of the largest supercomputers in the world were put to task. And what did you think that you might see? And did the picture live up to your expectations? Uh, stunningly so. Um, we, thought, we thought that if we were very, very lucky, we would see a, a ring-like image that was brighter on one side, nearly circular. And in fact, that is, that is exactly what we see. We see something that's very close to a ring, very nearly a circle, and it's brighter on one side. And encoded in those two things are, are key elements of Einstein's theory of gravity and, and uh, the dynamics, the extreme dynamics of the material emitting, things that are flying about at light speed near the black hole. So what does this tell us then? Like, what did you learn from that picture? What is it, what's the next step now? Well, so, so from, from this picture, we're able to verify a number of key predictions of Einstein's theory of relativity. And, and while that's not, well, that's not anything new, Einstein's theory of relativity has been passing tests ever since it, it, was, it was first postulated. In this environment, it's new. This is the first time we've been able to put Einstein's theory to the test deep down near a horizon where general relativity isn't a a minor correction to Newton's theory of gravity, but it is, in fact, the entire story. Um, what's the next step? Well, the simple answer is, is to do it again, because we're very fortunate 
that M87 changes on time scales of a week or a couple weeks. And so that means every time we go back and look at it again, we will see a slightly different face. The uh, astrophysical environment changes, the bright illuminating plasma changes. And so by studying it year after year, month after month, we'll be able to nail down not just gravity, not just Einstein, you know, putting Einstein to the test with ever greater precision, but understand those astrophysical dramas that, uh, that underlie how black holes impose themselves on the universe about them. Does this give you an even greater appreciation of Einstein's work to think that time and time again, his theories get put to the test and come out right? Uh, well, uh, certainly, certainly. Uh, you know, personally, uh, as, as a physicist, admittedly, I, I look at Einstein's theory of gravity, and I, and I personally feel it's beautiful. And often, in my experience, in nature, the truth is beautiful. And, and so it's, it's not terribly surprising that Einstein passes again in that sense. But bear in mind, this first image is the first, and, and the kinds of constraints we can place are at the 10% level. So we can say that Einstein is right to 10%. But as we move forward, we're going to be pushing that down below 1%. And so, um, you know, it gives me great appreciation for Einstein that he continues to be right. But, but truth be told, I think many of us are looking for that nugget, that first crack in the facade of general relativity that will signal the path to whatever comes next. So does this mean that black holes are what we thought they were? Uh, today, I think it means that black holes are real, and they, they do look the way we expect them to look. They do appear as general relativity predicts. It's amazing, too, hearing your translation of the picture, because for you know regular people like me, we look at the picture and we go, okay, that's nice. You look at the picture and you see something completely different, Avery. Well, you know, that, that may be true, but in some sense, I see, I think I see what other people see. I see the black hole cast in silhouette, this ominous dark hole in the center, which is, you know, very naturally identified with the event horizon, that point where light can't escape. It should be dark. And indeed, it is. The black hole is black. This has all been amazing now. So is it right back to work? So a day of celebration and then right back to work? Uh, well, that's right. We, I mean, we've, we've, been, we've been hard at work at this for a very long time. Uh, you know, this success is... Uh, more than a decade in coming, right? There was a lot of development for the instrument, a lot of development for the theoretical uh, underpinning and the, and the analysis effort. Um, and, and uh, you know, today our main results were published, but that means that we've already moved on to the next stages. We're already hard at work. Well, we're going to have to talk to you when you have another breakthrough then. Avery, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Fascinating. That was Avery Broderick, who's the associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo. That was one of the institutions involved in the project to photograph the black hole. And this was an international project. The press conference that they had to announce this today was held simultaneously all over the world, like Washington, Taipei, Shanghai, uh, Santiago, like you name it. They held it at the same time. Just gives you an idea of how huge this endeavor actually was. Pretty cool. Now, as we've been talking about today, we heard that Newfoundland and Labrador has announced that it's looking to become the second province to ban uh, the use and distribution of 
plastic bags. The provincial government there introduced this legislation yesterday, allowing it to ban the use of plastic bags at stores and other retail outlets. It says that the ban won't take effect for between six and 12 months. They want to give consumers some time to get into the habit of bringing reusable bags. Now, according to Greenpeace, Canadians generate about 3.25 million tons of plastic garbage each year, or enough to fill about 140,000 garbage trucks. So we wanted to know, could this happen here in BC? Like, is this something that you would support here in BC? That's also our hot question of the day today. But right now, we want to talk more about this issue of recycling plastic bags now. Uh, joining us is Harvinder Ajla, Director of Policy and Communications for the Recycling Council of British Columbia. Harvinder, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Simi. Glad to be here. Now, let's talk about recycling plastic bags. Like, is it possible people think that you can't get them recycled? Well, so we're lucky in BC because the plastic bags are included in our provincial recycling regulations. So there is a recycling program in place. And because it's provincial, it means that no matter where you live in the province, um, there's depots where you can return the bags to ensure that they get recycled, which is something that is often, you know, missing in a, in a lot of communities. We're definitely lucky in that respect in BC. That is true. But do you think, like, can we cut down? There still seems to me like a, a lot of usage of plastic bags. A hundred percent. You know, I always like to, my, my quote is, I feel like they'll put this on my tombstone one day, that <laughs> recycling is great, but reduce and reuse is even better, right? So yeah. that's what we really want to encourage people. Like recycling something at the end of life is... Um, you know, we've used it and now it's gone and, and we'll recycle it. But if we could cut down the amount of recycling that we're creating, it's, it's even better. So if, you know, people can either refuse a bag when they're at the store, like, do you really need a bag? Um, you know, do you have a backpack you could pop it in? Is it small enough to put in your pocket or your, you know, like sometimes if we, if we take that moment, we actually realize, you know, hey, I don't need this bag. Right. Or if you're planning a trip, like if you're going grocery shopping and you know, you know what, grab a few bags from home, keep some in the trunk of your car and, you know, um, and then you can refuse the bag as well because you've got an alternative there with you. Are we good at this here in BC? Like, how do we stack up? Well, I think we're pretty good in the sense that, um, you know, if you take a look at all the zero waste grocery stores, right, um, there's a lot, you know, farmer's markets, like, you know, we love to shop at at these types of places, and they don't offer a bag, right? Like, that's not even an option. Um, They're not available. And I think we've come quite accustomed to, if you go to certain retailers or or certain places that, you know, they're not going to offer you a bag, so you better be prepared, or, you know, you better find a, you know, an alternative to that single use bag. So do you think that a ban on plastic bags, something like that would work here in this province? Um, you know, I always say like it like there's different regulations you can have in place. So things a ban is definitely one tool that you can use in your in your toolkit. You know, having that fee at the point of purchase that also acts as a deterrent. Um having a recycling option. So I always think the most effective ones are where you give people, you know, a lot more choice. Um, because sometimes it's difficult to avoid a, a bag in certain applications. So, um, you know, it, it's never 100%, um, is the no fee, matter what option you choose. Is the mm-hmm. fee working, though, Harvinda? Because we've had that for so long now, right? And yeah. here we are still using plastic. It's almost still like we just plastic. go, yeah, sure, exactly. five cents, give me some plastic bags. Give me, yeah, exactly. And, they, you know, there is research that shows that having that fee um, does significantly reduce the amount of plastic bags that are being used. 
Um, but, you know, again, going back to like, you know, kind of the education piece, you know, and just letting people know that, hey, um, you know, you kind of have that power to, to say no. And I think if we sort of change our behaviors, then retailers and, and um, you know, the producers will realize that, you know, people want less packaging. They don't want to take that bag. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully they'll, you know, the system will change. And I think, you know, when you talk about a ban or a, a fee, you're not really solving the problem, right? You're yeah. kind of trying to put a Band-Aid on it. So we would really love to see, you know, maybe more education and, and more options for consumers to, you know, to not even have to face the bag. Yeah. What about yeah. Um, curbside recycling? Like, are, are these plastic bags easy to recycle? Um, they are tough to recycle. So that's another thing, oh. right? So they are recyclable, but um, they're collected separately. They're I don't think they are collected in many municipal curbs. No, they're not, but somebody was suggesting that we should try that. Well, the problem is they used to be in some communities, and they've taken them out because they're so fine and thin, they actually jam up the machinery, Ah. um, and that was why they were pulled out of the blue box system is... Um, they were causing problems, you know, when they're going to the recycling facility. So it was like, let's collect them separately at the depots, and that way they can be processed separately and aren't causing um, contamination or interference with other recycling processes. Right. Okay. So then we have some work to do here, though. Exactly. Yeah. So we're really eager, you know, to um, look at sort of what the future of of these single-use products in general is. I think, you know, we've kind of become accustomed to the convenience, and maybe our grandparents had it right, you know? I think they did. Right? (laughs) Everything that's old is cool again, right? It certainly is. Well, Harvinder, thank you so much for joining us on this today. Thank you, Simi. All right. Harvinder Adjala, Director of Policy and Communications for the Recycling Council of British Columbia. I think in a lot of, in some cases, our parents, our grandparents did have it right.